Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Melina Lee Williams Haas. I deeply appreciate you listening and taking the time to hang out with me. I will be addressing issues of life, the universe, and everything that are often bogged down and mired in shame and grief, and talk about how they can be repackaged to be useful and gorgeous and fucking awesome for you. So, sit back and relax, or, you know what? Sit up and freak out. However, you prefer to listen. Let's go. Today we just came from rehearsal, and by the time this airs, that is if I get it in on time, it's already late, so we'll see how <laughs> how lenient my producer is. I'm supposed to have my things in by Monday, and it's Wednesday, so, you know, that's not the awesomest thing. I'm a bad podcaster. But in order to make up for that shortfall, I have obtained an amazing special guest this evening, fresh from a triumphant tour of Europe... <laughs> And hot off of the presses from a triumphant performance of his opera Sycorax in Bern, Switzerland, is the uh, legendary contemporary composer Georg Friedrich Haas. Welcome, Mr. Haas. Welcome. Good evening, everybody. <laughs> Good evening, all my fans. <laughs> <laughs> well, once they know you're my guest, they will certainly be queuing up to listen. <laughs> How was it for you being in rehearsal today? It was incredible, because the conductor has performed it the second time, and there were many musicians who have performed it before, and it's incredible to listen how this piece develops, mm, mm-hmm. how these very complicated microtonal harmonies get closer and clearer and clearer. I want to also point out, this is the youngest ensemble we've worked with, isn't it? Maybe two, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. Because we had Conform, which is very seasoned veterans, mm-hmm. you know, obviously know what they're doing. And then we had Alarmal Sound, which is, again, sort of a younger, skews yeah. younger. I think yeah. it was definitely a younger group. And now we have this group, which feels to me even younger still, I think, yeah. a bit. So it, it, I think your prediction of the fact that as time goes on, people will have more open ears and hearts for what you're trying to do. I think that that's an accurate prediction. That's absolutely. Just to explain uh, those who are not professionalists about contemporary music and they think this will be 99% of of (laughs) my music is is microtonal. I say it's this means the musicians have to play pitches which in traditional music are wrong. Well, traditional white music. Traditional white music are wrong, yes. Thank you. And well, also in most other traditions, because this is a very special sound quality which is based on, on acoustic analysis of pitches. Yeah, but the other thing is that most other cultures are there for stylistics and note sliding and... And freedom to play, yeah. and so many other. You know, if you look at if you look at Eastern music, there's it's a whole different system, right? Yeah, yeah. but the fact that they have a different system 
Westerns European or Western, does not mean that all these different systems are the same, because they're absolutely different. Right, but that's my point, is that on these different systems, the idea of a wrong note is going to be different. Yeah, but uh, well, we also have to be conscious that, for example, a piano or a synthesizer in traditional Indian music would be just out of tune, horribly out of tune. <laughs> Because what is wrong and what is correct is, uh, depends on the cultural tradition. But the problem for the musicians in my music is they have to perform pitches which are based on their experience, wrong pitches. Sure. And they have to First of all, they have to play these pitches as beautifully as they play the correct pitches. And now the real problem is coming. And they have to play these pitches more exactly than they are normally used in European and American music. Mm -hmm. And this is a huge, huge challenge. And maybe you remember, I've spoken about one notation which is might be misinterpreted. And then at the end of the rehearsal, the bassist and the viola player they came together and they just practiced these intervals. Mm -hmm. And this is, for me, always as a composer, one of the most beautiful experiences <laughs> when I watch musicians in their free time. Because they are, after rehearsals, they are, right. they are not paid anymore. Yeah? <laughs> just, just they go into the, the free time to find the right thing because they are, because they are fascinated with this. Exactly, song. exactly. And this is what I love about working with musicians is the curiosity, right? And it's the thing that I always love about working with other actors who are people who are curious. You know, this is something that I discovered about myself that was different from a lot of other people is curiosity. And the idea that there's some people who are given an answer and are fine with that. And there's some people who are inspired even when they don't have an answer to continue to push and find one. And that has always been for me so important. Like it's literally one of the baselines for whether or not I feel like I can connect with someone. Yeah, but when you say musicians are more, what did you say? Curious. More curious. Is this is not true in general. Those musicians who play contemporary music, they are curious. Well, for example, if you go... Well, what other musicians am I working with? <laughs> well, for, uh, well, for example, with traditional orchestras, and there you have the problems that... Sure, for but, them, well, yeah, is, but I haven't worked with a traditional orchestra, have I? Sorry? I have not worked with a quote-unquote uh, traditional orchestra. Only, yeah, yeah, yes, because always, always let me alone into this horror. <laughs> <laughs> well, write more music for me, you know, and then that's what can I say? Yeah. You just need to have like spoken word in all of your pieces from now on. <laughs> My wife will recite a poem now. <laughs> and they're going to be like, wait, don't give us any more commissions. He keeps having his wife read crazy shit <laughs> in the middle of every piece. <laughs> But it's so, it's so energizing and especially because I don't have fun. This is not like a fun piece for me. You know, afterwards I feel like half of my bodily fluids have been drained and I just want to crawl into a hole and sleep. And so to have the energy of the musicians is really super important for me. I realized in a piece like this, you know, like when I do my solo show 69 stories, there's a lot of variation. There's some happy stories. There's some sad stories. There's some wacky stories, but this is just relentlessly fucked up. 
you know, um, hopefully the next two pieces will not be relentlessly fucked up because, you know, Hyena 2 has a very different arc and Hyena 3 will be more inspiring and more uplifting, I feel, because because ultimately the arc is how do you accept yourself when parts of you are, are damaged or ugly or lashing out? I think that Hyena is the, the piece in music history with the most beautiful happy end. Mm. The happy end of this piece is not the music in the music. It ends with this person who is a storyteller who tells her story, which says she has very few chance. And if you just listen to the piece, you would not believe that this person will really survive. But the happy end is that now you are standing here. And you are, and I think maybe this is one of the reasons why this music, this piece, Hyena, is beyond the musical energy, because you tell a story about utter desperation, mm. about hopelessness. Not always hopeless, because the last sentence is, uh, she's waiting, I lose hope, and I will not, which is also an extremely beautiful sentence. And she's puts this last sentence, opens the door to the fact that, yes, you made it until now. And this is, this gives also people a lot, a strong energy to, mm. uh, to trust that it is possible. And they would even say it's a completely different position than we have in the traditional European romantic music, you know, mm. in, in all the operas, uh, the women has to die, right. and everything is hopeless, <laughs> and everything is dark, and there is no light, and this music has very few hope, but this very few hope increases by the fact that you, Molina Lee Williams House, is now standing here and telling it. Standing on stages all over the world, right? Yeah. I mean, like, this is the thing that is... Now I'm going to get like super emo. This is the thing that's so shocking to me is that like when I'm in it, performing it, I just feel that void opening back up, you know? And the reality is that as an alcoholic, that void is always there. We're walking on the edge of it, on the edge of a cliff at all times. And living like that can be very exhausting. Yes, and, and, but this is the gift which you give the people. Yeah. You are brutally honest. Really, you're honest. You speak about the darkest and uncom- most uncomfortable experience which you had, experiences which you had during your yeah, during disease. Doing a, you had the most. You're speaking about the most horrible and most disgusting experiences which you had during your disease. And this is still the sanitized version. Like there's, like I didn't include like all the horrible shit. I don't have hours. Okay. You know, but like this is the thing because as I'm talking about like okay, you know, like fine, I pissed in the bed, blah blah blah. There's not the like waking up and literally not knowing where the fuck you are or who the person next to you is. Mm-hmm. You know, there's living in 
I, I allude to it, but the state of my house before I went into rehab and my friends helped me to, to, to empty it was like a hoarder house. You know, well, the state of my rooms, the rest of the house was not as bad because other people live there and I kept the mess to myself. But the depth even there is not. I don't have to go into detail. The music tells so much of it, right? Like there's still the idea of that horror being deeper yeah. is certainly present. Well, and, but as an artist, also when you write the texts, it, I think it's stronger when you just have this one thing with being in the bed and having it twice. If you would add a second story and a third story, the effect would be neutrally silent. Yeah, so, I mean, know, I guess that's true. That's just an artistic trick. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm good. <laughs> you know, it's so rough because there are not a lot of examples in the public eye of people talking about the reality of being an addict or being fucked up. Like, Margaret is the only other person that I can recall. I'm trying to think of any other people who have done such public discussions about it, right? Like, I just, I don't remember seeing very many celebrities or high-profile people, or even people who are recovery, you know, sort of celebrities. Like, there's one of the shows, one of the intervention shows. The interventionist is this, like, pretty blonde lady, you know. And she, you know, deadpan will tell you about when she was, like, a crack hoe, basically, and at the lowest depths of her, and you do, you look at her and you're like, here she is in her cute shirt and her like nice jeans and her beautiful pumps. How could this person have, you know, and so it's very illustrative, but there aren't many, I mean, I can't think of any, maybe it's just my ignorance, people of color who are publicly talking about addiction and, and, and recovery from these things. You know, I'm not so much a part of the quote unquote recovery community, so I don't know a lot about that, but it feels very dangerous. Every time I get up there, I'm fully expecting, no shit, someone to just, like, shake their head in disgust when I say these things. Like, I'm staring at the audience going, who's going to be the one? Of course, it has never happened. And if it happens, this person is punished. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This this is so horrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay. They will get a hex on them, like, just warning to my audience. If you evince the... No, I'm hexing them! They have a hex! You don't need to hex them. (laughs) They hex themselves. Of course, there exist ugly persons. Yeah, no, and there's millions of them. Some of them comment on my TikToks when I post about consensual MS relationships. People are like, you're sick and you're fucked up. And my skin is thick. You know what? My skin is not thicker. It's not that my skin is thick. I'm always, people like, oh, you need to be more thick skin. I'm like, no, I don't want my skin thick. I want to feel things. What has happened is I've run out of fucks. I went really into fuckruptcy. I occasionally have a couple fucks that sneak back. And then I'm like, oh, that hurt my feelings a little bit. But in terms of how I live my life, I genuinely pity people who don't love everything about who I am. Like, I feel bad for you. Your life is probably boring and shitty, or you are an unhappy person, or you are living under some sort of regime that means that you are bound to just be like a miserable person. If you're looking at something someone else is doing and feeling good about it, consensual, no one's being harmed, everyone's feeling great, and you're judging them, that is a sad group of motherfuckers right there. Absolutely. 
No. Why do you allow these sad motherfuckers? It's not allowing. It's part of me because part of me still has that vulnerability, and I actually don't want to shut that part down. I know how to comfort that part of me more effectively when my feelings are hurt, or when someone does, you know, get to me in a in a in a in a in a way that really hurts. You know, I'm much better at it, and. I think in dealing with trying to detach from the attachment that I still felt to my family and in despite the fact that it was hurting me, despite the fact that the way that they are hurts me and the way that I am, they don't like. And me finally deciding, you know what? I don't need people in my life who either tolerate me or love me despite who I am. And regardless of anything else, that is a core break point. If you are loving me or you're appreciating me or I'm in your life, despite who I am, I don't need you. And I will say, honestly, that was one of the things that made me drink, was feeling obligated to be around people or to interact with people or that I had to do X, Y, and Z. And I needed that liquid courage to go and do the things I quote unquote had to do. And as a child, you don't have those choices. As an adult, I sure as fuck do. And I need to like get the fuck out of those. Cause like seriously, that shit, that's like pushing you towards relapse right there. That's the shit when you're an alcoholic and you're walking on the edge of that cliff, that's the shit that drives you back over. Because you make choices to engage with people who are harming you. Not that those people are making you drink, but that you have made a choice to go and let people into your sphere of interest who don't love you unconditionally, truly unconditionally. That's where people fuck up. It always makes me crazy when people are like, oh, you're making, I'm going to drink if this is like, no, no, you're choosing that. When you are in your disability, when you're in your alcoholism, you're not making choices. But when you're sober, when you're sober and you pick up that, you, that was a clear headed choice you fucking made. You know what I mean? That's the thing that makes me the most crazy about relapse is that I personally, for me, feel like that first drink would be an absolute clear headed choice. And why would you do that? Unless you were suicidal. And there's nothing that terrifies me more than death. So like, that's all I needed. I needed to know that I was going to die. But you saw it's the beginning of pain. I said to yeah. understand if you don't stop, then you will yeah. die. And here's the thing, as many people who do interventions will tell you, there's this idea that you have to hit rock bottom, that you have to be in the absolutely most miserable place you could physically be in order to understand that you should stop. And I was like, wow, I actually didn't get to rock bottom. I had a home. I still had friends. I had my cats. It's rock bottom was to... The rock, like my rock bottom was to have that moment in the mirror. Yeah. But the thing is that for so many people, that moment in the I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of people who've been like, yeah, I knew I was dying, but I kept drinking. I knew I was going to lose custody of my kids, but I kept drinking. I knew I was going to, you know what I mean? Like those stories are perpetual. And so to me, I was always like, wow, like that's how powerful that lore, that ability to erase your mind is. And I fucking get it because I tell you on many days I wish I could erase my fucking mind because it's doing things that I don't even understand I don't even get what my brain does sometimes on some days but you hide this from me very well 
<laughs> I hide it from you by sleeping. <laughs> but I do, you do, I do leave you notes to remind you so that you can remember. Yeah. Well, maybe I should just tell a secret. In our living room, there's a note, big letters, which reminds me, reminding slave might be crazy. <laughs> I'm trying to explain to him, you know, it's interesting because you have not had a partner who has gone through menopause and you have not had a partner who was me, so... <laughs> so it's, it's very interesting to have to say, you know what, my chemistry is fluid right now and it's hard and I might feel like completely nuts and off my rocker but the good thing is that you are already like way beyond me and crazy so I'm just catching up to you well but I'm so dumb It is your right, your contractual <laughs> right to be crazy pants. <laughs> I love you. I love you, darling. And going back to this rehearsal, this is one of the most beautiful things which may happen in life. If you can see, if you can feel, if you can watch, if you can hear, if whether you love turns to something beautiful and important which is going further than your relationship. Mm. This, as well as the opera Sikorax, is a music, is a work which only is able to exist based on our love. And that this love now is getting into an abstract mm. second level. This is a huge gift of the universe to us. Yeah, you're right. And it's a, I feel like it is very much an honor yeah. to be able to do this work. When we first met, after I've made my bargain with the universe to say, like, either give me everything I want or I'm going to get a corporate job and I'm out. You know, I'm taking myself off of this path. I'm done. You know, and the universe was like, no, 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 no. Okay, fine. Here you go. <laughs> I still could not have imagined that what we would be doing would be literally traveling the world to share ourselves and our talent and the fact that our talent dovetails so perfectly in this way is so remarkable and so precious and I am just so thrilled that we have come this far like even if we did nothing else this is an amazing legacy we have an opera and we have this piece But the reality is we have like at least four more pieces lined up yeah. that will be further explorations of how beautiful it is when you are honest and you live your authentic life. Like, I remember today I got up and I like was like, oh, I don't want to do anything. And I got up, I jumped up to make you lunch because I was like, oh my God, he's coming home in 40 minutes. I got to get everything together. And then I was like, I'm just going to lay back down. And then I was like, no, I should be. And I was like, wait a second. Why am I perpetually feeling like I should be doing something else? Like, I feel like I'm lazy if I lie down and think about stuff. Meanwhile, people have paid millions of dollars to think about stuff, right? And I realized that as a black person in America, 
the messaging takes and it's in your skin and in your cells, even if you have worked hard to rid yourself of that. And so the idea that I am not at a desk, I am not producing something at the end of eight hours plus an hour for lunch, I have not put money into someone else's pockets or my own is somehow a failing versus me realizing, holy shit, this is the life I have craved since I was five years old and dragged out of bed and put into a shower and forced to sit in a room with a bunch of other smart kids at 9am at 8.30am when I was like under my covers at 2.30 in the morning reading book after book after book after book. I was like, I want to do this on my time. And now, aside from our travel days, we do what the fuck we want. You have maybe two days a week where you have some structure. And I have my structure dictated by you, and your structure is already pretty fucking flexible. And we also fight, I fight, uh, to keep this freedom as intense as possible. And we will, because the reality is, even if we had to scale our lives the hell back and live in some little one-bedroom apartment somewhere in a basement, Professor, I would still be so happy to be with you. I would be too, like. It is just just so wonderful to do this. And the, one of the beautiful things is, in life, it's a huge and amazing experiences which we do have remain in our memory. The huge and, ex- and amazing experiences which we have remain in our memory. Nobody can steal us today's rehearsal. Yeah. Nobody can steal us the first performance of Sikorax. Nobody can steal us the happiness which we have in our personal life when we are together. And this is a gift for our life and I'm so so thankful for that. Grateful for that so you can be thankful. Be thankful. <laughs> you can be grateful, you can be thankful. You can be everything because you have, you don't have to earn anything in life. There's some things that are just intrinsically the right of human beings and you also have earned it. You have learned so many lessons in the hardest way possible, Professor. Excuse me, that's not true. I'm, I have still the right privilege. I have the privilege to be born in an upper middle class family. You can have. I have the privilege. I had the privilege to go to university. Yes, you can have all those privileges, and that does not negate the fact that you were abused and had a childhood as brutal as any I've heard. Here's the thing you can have all the privilege you want, but if I had to choose between coming up in an abusive house. Okay, there was abuse in my house too, but nothing to the extent and the depth and the breadth of what you endured. 
And if I had to trade, if I could be an upper middle class kid and have gone to school and all those other things and add to that the layer of the abuse you suffered, absolutely fucking not. Absolutely the fuck not. And I'm not even kidding. Like, would I, if, if I were given that stark choice, which is this stupid thought experiment, right? But if I were, I'd say like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to figure out how to not finish school because I don't want that. I don't want that weight. But the thing is that the comparison is a moot point. This is not how life works. How life works is, as far as I'm concerned, you make the choices you can make and then you're buffeted around by some choices you can't make. But in one point, I agree with you that I did really miss an important point of my life. I, if I could have a choice, I would try to be as kinky as you were, as you were during the, your age of 15 to <laughs> 15. You would have been a freak in high school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I missed all this. And this... I would say this is the highest price I paid for mm. the abuse. Mm. That your the things of if your formative years were were damaged. Yeah, it's damaged, and I could I could not accept myself. Right, I could, right, yes. And I tried to uh, follow some rules or some levels, moral levels, which were bullshit. Which were bullshit and which were, <laughs> and were not moral at all. And I really lost many things in my life, which yes. I never will get back. Yeah. And now, I mean, not to say that something as tragic as this is all right, but your enjoyment, the fullness with which you invest every moment, maybe you would not have been there if you had everything when you wanted. Yeah. I don't know if that helps to soothe you at all. No. <laughs> like, no, go fuck yourself. <laughs> no, as, as, as I remember one of the jokes which my father told. Somebody was got the deal. He has to make some. He has to make his dog happy. His dog. His dog. Yeah. Okay. And uh, then this person who told him makes your dog happy watched him pulling the dog on the tail and throwing and turning in circles around him. And they said, oh God, what are you doing here? They said, yes, he, you don't have an idea how happy this dog is when I let him free. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That is the most Austrian joke I've Of ever course heard. it's Austrian, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. If you want the flawless example of what Austrian humor is, write that one down, y'all, because that's just about the most Austrian joke I've fucking heard. Oh, my gosh. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> so thank you for being my guest this week, Professor. Thank you for inviting me. And um, if you are listening to this on Friday, the what is it, the 24th? Friday the 24th? Of February? Is it the 24th? Maybe. When is the show? God damn it. Um, anyway, I will be on stage that day performing Hyena. It's the last Friday in February. Last Friday in February. And uh, you know, the other thing that's really remarkable about this, and this is why I'm actually super emo, is that so many people from so many facets of my life are coming to see this show. I have friends from high school and elementary school. I have friends that I met on the West Coast, you know, kinky people 
non-kinky people, old colleagues, so many folks who have said that they're coming to see the show. And it's really humbling. And it's also so energizing. I'm just, I'm so glad to be able to perform for these folks, to be able to say to them personally, each of you have had a moment in this journey. All of them. And that's so, uh, it's so remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, darling, to do all this thing. I gotta do it. I love you. I love you. You've been listening to All That and Mo. Thanks so much for spending your precious, precious time with me today. My podcast is produced by Cody Crabb, theme music by Georg Friedrich Haas, as performed by Marcus Weiss. And I look forward to spending time with you again really soon. Mm-hmm.